This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our series on the Bible, what to believe and what to leave. So we at the Constructionists encourage a worldview that's built on the principles of Christ, and in this episode, we are examining the Gospels. We're probably ruining the Bible for some of you as we talk about old stories of the Old Testament, like we've done, and now a few of the New Testaments and give new perspectives that may go against what you've learned in the past. Maybe those flannel graphs in Sunday school were giving an alternate view. That might be scary for some in the deconstructionists, maybe creating a little bit of disillusionment, but I want to assure you to hang with us because our hope and that we offer these insights and perspectives will help you. They'll help you in your own journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you in tonight's episode that we're not fabricating anything, as many have done, and we're just giving information and ideas and giving you resources that you can continue this journey yourself. So our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective on our examination. So we call this our thinking space, where we're presenting these thoughts, and tonight we're making our best attempt to explain practical theologies to live by out of the Gospels. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the social media platform you're listening to and visit our Give page. But more importantly, we want to hear from you and engage with you in dialogue, and we believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and grow together. So we value feedback, we value your questions and your ideas. And we're excited to build a community around our shared exploration of new ideas and perspectives of what we call a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out and to talk to us and let us know what you think. So Jake and Sherea, thank you for joining us. We are now in the New Testament in our Gospels. And so we are going to just start right off and over the next hour, we're going to cover the Gospels, what they are, what they mean, pick out a few stories and make sense of them and build maybe even a new understanding of what Gospels are and what the parables are, what the stories are in the New Testament. And I hope that you're blessed by this. So, Sharia, you're going to do our introduction. So take us off from here on the introduction to the Gospels. Yeah. So the Gospels, well, the word gospel typically means good news, right? The good news of Jesus. Um, and so the Gospels are the four books we have in the New Testament that are about Jesus' life. They're collections of stories about the life and sayings of Jesus. Um, and so we're going to look at how those four are related. Uh, Jake, would you be willing to bring that picture up, please? Thanks. So this is courtesy of Wikipedia, um, but it shows how the, what are called the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
how those books are related. Um, and if it's an overwhelming or intimidating graphic right now, that's okay. Um, we're gonna unpack it. So first we're gonna talk about Mark, which you can see up at the top there. Um, the Mark was very likely the first gospel to be written. Um, it's the shortest gospel and that is one of the clues that we have that it was probably first. Um, typically, if you are going to be copying down a text, you are more likely to add to it than you are to remove from it. So it being a shorter book is a good clue that it is probably first. The author of Mark is unknown. Tradition says that it's John Mark who traveled with Paul, um, but there are a lot of scholars who disagree with that. Um, and the date that it was written is probably around 70 CE. Um, it could be a little before, it could be a little after. Um, the big important thing that happened in 70 AD was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem during the first Jewish Roman war. Um, and that was a huge, profound, significant event in Jewish history. Um, and so, the way the Gospels talk about the temple offers clues as to when they were written. So because the temple doesn't play a huge role in the Gospel of Mark, some folks think that Mark was written before the destruction of the temple. And some folks think that it was likely after because of the way that it handles the, the stories as well. So I'm just pulling this off the top of my head and I can't remember if this occurs in Mark, so correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Gospels, we do see Jesus talk about the the stones of the temple being overthrown and then rebuilt in three days. Um, that does kind of reference the destruction of the temple, so I would lean towards Mark being written a little ways after the destruction of the temple, but again, it's up for debate. Um, regardless, that puts the date around 70 AD. And I think it's worth noting that that is still about 40 years after Jesus' life and death is supposed to have been. So these stories are pretty far removed from Which would be an when generation. they would have occurred. Right. Um, I have not even lived that long yet. <laughs> <laughs> so what's then what would you conclude? Like what are some reasonable like scary and non-scary conclusions that you can come to. The gospels are written like 40 years, 50 years, 60, 70 years after Jesus. So what are some conclusions you can come to? What's the, what's the validity of the stories then the viability of them? Right. I mean, so much of that feels um, like personal opinion um, and what you're, you're willing to trust. Um, Jesus is a significant enough person that stories about him were circulating. Um, and those stories eventually were written down. Some of them, some of them were not, we don't really know. Um, so I do think there is absolutely a, an oral tradition, a verbal tradition, um, that link these stories back to Jesus, but there is still quite a bit of doubt about what actually happened. Um, kind of like, as we've been saying this whole series, the books aren't meant to be a historical record of what happened. They're narrative that's set in a specific historical context. 
And mm-hmm. so it's it's really more the themes of the story that is is the important part. And you have to have a great trust and faith if you're going to believe word for word. You have to have a great trust and faith in the early church tradition of protecting mm-hmm. documents, protecting written oral tradition. I'm not sure if I can put my full 100% trust in the early church to do so because there's a lot of political agenda jockeying and really just rudimentary life back then. Um, People had, just like today, alternate agendas to try to get across. Um, But for the content and the main themes and the direction I believe those have remained, that idea, those ideas remain intact. So some of the big ideas like the Sermon on the Mount or the big idea of the resurrection and and those were important enough events that they really do hold some integrity over the years Mm -hmm. as accurate. And I would think that the authors in the early church, like they wrote these texts to be used but they weren't necessarily thinking okay we want to make sure that people 3000 from years ago are still reading this text and so we have to be very careful with it and preserve it right they weren't thinking that far ahead they were thinking about their immediate future so they weren't necessarily handling these texts as scripture yet Mm -hmm. i think there's some there's some hard pieces to the gospel, especially with dating mm-hmm. that yes, the temple plays a pivotal role. And since Christianity was a sect of Judaism for a long time, a very long time, you would, you would think that the destruction of the temple would, would be written about right mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just not, it's not referenced in any gospel. So my first thought is like, well, they, it probably hasn't happened yet. So 72 AD is when the temple is destroyed. The, or CE, AD, CE, it's all good. Same thing. The, um, but you go into, you think the why, why was the gospels written? And it was to record the life of Jesus and Jesus' saints. Far, far removed from from Jesus, because this would have been oral or even uh, there's another form. I don't know if we're talking about quelle later on, probably. That's next. Okay, but the the why was it written? Um, the early church believed that Jesus was coming back imminently, and so it would be within their lifetime. So much so, like Paul through his writings talk about getting back to work. Don't just party until Jesus comes. That's Thessalonians, uh-huh. um, literally partying until Jesus came. So the, it was, we don't know when it's coming. So here is, so get back to work. But now you have gospels. The only reason that you would need to write a story down is if you don't know when, or you think it's long enough away that the story is going to be relevant. And so that's the case for a very late date that, 
We mm. want this to be preserved. We don't. We we lost hope that Jesus was coming back within our generation or the generation after us, and so that's why you can get into very late dates. Mm-hmm. And if those dates, if if it's very late, and the destruction of the temple was fifty plus years before it, right. sixty years, mm-hmm. if you're looking at one hundred and thirty or even upwards of two fifty CE, the the temple could have just lost its meaning and that's why it's not there in all gospels right because you have generations now who have grown up without the temple being a central part of their life yeah the synagogue system and that's why i think that's why jesus taught in synagogues often mm-hmm. um the temple is less less of a focal point uh but it's still there and it it becomes more metaphysical than than actually physical that the to- that the curtain is torn that Jesus mm-hmm. will tear down the temple and build it in three days, but just wanted to go back to the temple piece a little bit because it's yeah. it's it's super interesting for dating purposes. I think that's that's mm-hmm. most of the struggle. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So that's Mark. Um, let's talk about Quella. Um. So do you mind putting that graphic up again? And we're just going to do this with everyone. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so the trouble with Q is that we don't know if it exists. Um, Q uh, stands for Quella, which means source in German. And our best guess is that it exists because Luke and Matthew both contain the same material. Um, if you look at this graphic, so where it says double tradition in the dark blue, that is very likely Q. Because both of these books contain the same thing, and we have no way of knowing whether the authors would have collaborated. Um, probably not. There's enough uniqueness to the books to suggest that they were both borrowing from the same source material. So because we don't know for sure if Q existed, um, we don't know the author and we don't know the date for sure either. Um, again, it's probably around 70-ish CE, but we don't know. Um, mm. And Q would have mostly contained sayings of Jesus. So if you look at the things that are the same between only Luke and Matthew, it's mostly related to sayings of Jesus. So then our next gospel is the gospel of Matthew. Um, This one, again, is attributed to the disciple Matthew, but we really don't know, and that seems kind of unlikely, especially when you look at the date. This one is probably a little after Mark and Q, so probably somewhere between 75 and 90 CE, after the first Jewish-Roman War. Um, And you can see that Matthew has about 45% of it shared from the book of Mark and about 25% of it shared from Q. And then, um, oh, actually, if you add the the red percentage in there too, it's about 50% that's shared between Mark and Matthew and then about 20% that's unique to Matthew. Matthew um, tends to emphasize Jewish tradition um, and focuses on Jesus as the son of David and as the Messiah. And then our next one is Luke, um, which would also contain Acts. Um, 
So Luke is attributed to Luke, the companion of Paul, but again, we don't really know. And it seems unlikely, especially as the dating gets later and later. This one was probably written just a little bit after Matthew, maybe more like 80 to 110 CE. Um, and the themes, it's more focused on the Gentiles than the Jews. There's a lot of focus on power and the oppression of the marginalized and salvation. Um, and so you can see about 35% of the book of Luke is unique to Luke. About 42% is shared between Luke and Mark, and then about 23 comes from Q source. So those are the synoptic gospels and they all share a lot of the same elements. That's what makes them the synoptic gospels. Our next gospel is very different. And this is the gospel of John. Hmm. Once again, this is attributed to John, the disciple or um, the disciple that Jesus loved. But again, we don't really know. And because I think the dating for John is quite a bit later, it gets more and more unlikely that this would have been the disciple John. Um, <clears throat> at the earliest, folks put it at 70. Um, right. <laughs> and we can see from Jake's face and Kevin's face that that's pretty unlikely. Um, many place it at about 90 to 110 CE. Um, but there are folks who take it way later than that too, into the hundreds, even the two hundreds, right? There, there's fragments of John that we know are taken out of like a text from AD 150. Mm -hmm. So we know it's, we know it's pre 150, very much post 100. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would say that um, I would say in tradition, if you were a disciple of John, to attribute that book mm -hmm. to John was a tradition. It's so common. John or the disciple of John, it's kind of like, you know, Luke writing about Paul, right? So, so, so somebody else is writing for um, this person. So, uh, so it, I would say that at least probably my my personal like at, after you know research and such personal view is somebody very connected to john probably wrote or penned down the story but i i doubt i doubt as well that it was john it was which i'm totally comfortable with saying that i mean so with matthew mark and luke i, I get where and i i agree that it wasn't John. It could be a John. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're we're pretty certain that it wasn't the traditional what people think they are, and it's right. attributed to them. Right. But yeah, it's it was very common in in the ancient world too. It's I mean it's even common now, right? Ghost writing, mm -hmm. super yeah. common. Yeah. But the idea is that attributed writing is is very very common as well posthumously even where mm -hmm. they've died more likely the john was dead very much dead and right. what's hard in the gospels is when um jesus talks to peter after the resurrection that some of you will still be alive when i come mm -hmm. back basically and points to john 
um, kind of gives an allusion to John lived a long time and right. could have been still alive when those gospels are written. But I don't know. Who knows? We don't know. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that makes John unique is that it is explicit about making Jesus God. Um, the other gospels tend to hint around that or offer clues or not even mention it, but John is much more explicit about Jesus being God. So there you go. That's the Gospels. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I think it's important to at least go over a couple of stories of the Gospels. There's lots of stories in the Gospels. We're not going to cover all of them, but this is just the the one time that we're going to cover these Gospels um, and just go over a few very signature, important, popular type parables and stories. Um in the gospels. So the first that we're going to cover is the parable of the talents. And this is, and this is definitely a very popular sermonized parable that has been used for years um, in a certain way. So Jake, you're going to take this and tell us the traditional view and then tell us more likely what this parable actually uh, means. I think it's a, it's important that parables, even the life of Jesus, were culturally bound to a specific time and place. Mm -hmm. And so us reading them with a Western lens, even a capitalistic lens, we take stories much differently than someone living in occupied Roman territory in the Near East. And so... Um, especially with a, a mass tradition of texts that they're pulling from the Torah. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that when, when we look back into these, in these stories, yes, it can be applied to today, but we can't use today to decipher the meaning. They're culturally bound to time and space. And so I'll bring up. But then in reverse, just so not to interrupt, but Fine. really quickly, then in reverse though, the meaning can be applied to today totally the meaning can be applied to today i think i tried to say that earlier but maybe it was lost the meaning can be applied today we just can't use today to decipher the meaning right cool so i'll go to the bible <clears throat> we'll read it so jesus is talking about the kingdom of god parables this is in matthew the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is leaving on a trip he called his servants and handed him his possessions over to them. To one he gave five coins, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He gave each servant according to the servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing the business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with additional five coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. He replied, his master replied, you excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over little, and I'll put you in charge of much. Come and celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master said, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I'll put you in charge of much. Come and celebrate with me. Now, the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops that you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid, and I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, you evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown. I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that when I return, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has ten coins. The one who has much will receive more and they will have more than they need. But as those who don't have much, even a little bit, they will, have, will be taken away from them. Now take this worthless servant and throw him into the outer darkness where people there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. So when you read this story, um, the traditional, currently the traditional understanding of the story is that what you do with your gifts, and oftentimes this coin is called a talent, and that's where that idea comes from, that you have your talents, that we're going to just translate that over to English and say our gifts, because it's easy. You have your gifts, and what you're given, when you use those, you'll be given even more so that those who have more gifts will get even more and you'll be called good and faithful servant at the end of your life if you if you do what you're supposed to be doing with with the time and the energy and the resources that you have uh, this is a tra very traditional funeral passage calling people good and faithful servants um, it is oftentimes um, our Christian life should be to a standard that we're called good and faithful, which is all true and good. But this is not what this passage is about. When you look at this passage, even the last little bit, I'll go back to it again. But as those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. When you hear that, you have to pause and think, so the people that are in poverty, they're gonna be put more into poverty because more will be taken away from them. And if you go back a little bit more in the passage where it talks about the master's uh, actions, even the middle to it, you knew where I harvest grain, where I haven't sown, I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In most cases, that is complete theft. That the master goes into places that they haven't done the hard work and took from people who did do the hard work. Took from people that, that were trying to produce and stole from them. Let's go back again. If you go into this, you should have turned my money over, in verse 27, over to the bankers so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. 
in our mindset, interest is fine. It's what it's how our economy is structured. That we borrow money, we use that money, and we pay back that money with interest. But these people listening were bound by the Torah. And so if you go into the Torah, especially in Deuteronomy 23, it says, Do not charge your fellow Israelites interest, whether on money or provisions or anything else one might loan. You can charge others and foreigners' interests, but not your fellow Israelite. Do this so the Lord your God will bless you in all your work on the land you are entering to possess. And there's a few other passages throughout the Old Testament where it talks about not charging interest on the money that you loan. This master has so many things stacked against them that the master can't be God in this scenario. Say, so look, where is where is the moral nugget? Where is God? And how I take it, and I think how how especially below the equator theologians that are in poverty and and even most of the world that is not a Western lens. Is that Africa, we, South America? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> not the Western lens. Not the wet lens of capitalism, not the lens of, of colonial white. If you take it, then you go into I'm not going to engage in the economic system that takes from an individual. And so even in the end of the passage as well, it talks about getting, going thrown into Gehenna, which is the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, Gehenna is, is the garbage dip, the dump, sorry, outside of Jerusalem where crucified bodies would be thrown after they were crucified. And the weeping and gnashing of teeth is the mourners that that are paid mourners that go out and mourn crucified victims. And so Jesus here was foreshadowing his own death. It has nothing to do with talents. It has nothing to do with, with your possessions or your giftedness or even be calling good and faithful servant when you're dead. You can be a good and faithful servant. That's awesome. But this is not what that passage is about. what i got on that one nice so a little different uh but makes more sense otherwise god's in this evil position and god can't be in that evil position you have to vilify god in order for it that <clears throat> makes sense and, and how this is how this is played out i think in modern i would say corporate church is there's an entire industry built around gift testing, gift matching, using your talents, purpose driven, all of these like ideas. There's an industry around this that is alluded back to don't waste your talents. And so so that's problematic for me when I when I read a more alternate view because like there there could have been instead of that industry of Christian personality testing and gift testing, right? There could have been a whole industry built around Sabbath and taking a break from the economic system in that form of Sabbath, but there's not. Most people think that, they, that I, I mean, I was just reading a book just the other day about the idea of Sabbath and, well, on your idea of Sabbath, that's your time to just go out and you know, hang out in a restaurant and have dinner and, uh, 
go get a cup of coffee with your friend and I'm just sitting there thinking, yeah, but you're making that person your waitress or your barista work for you. Like that doesn't make sense to me. If the sat so why? Because we have an American view of Sabbath. An American view of Sabbath is Sabbath is for me only versus Sabbath is for others as well, that I, I'm not putting people to work for my acquisition. So it's unfortunate that we've, we've, I guess, misaligned these scriptures and built industries around these scriptures based on some of this illusion of these scriptures, when in fact they actually mean something completely different. Yeah. And you can shame people into trying to work harder. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That is, I think, very important to this passage, that if you take it in a Western lens, that you have to work hard. And if you're unable to, in any sort of emotional or physical capacity, mm -hmm. you were not a good and faithful servant. Right. And that's where, like, the Protestant experiment is really is really into this passage as well. Um, there's a lot of, I think, gross theologies that hinge on this text specifically mm -hmm. when you look at it in the lens that the master is God. Mm -hmm. I, 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 we often say like most passages can be interpreted in many different ways and they can be, but in this but passage, that's, that's what, no. mm -mm. in this passage, you can interpret it in, in a few different ways as long as you take God out of the position of the master. Yeah, that's a rough one. Because okay. otherwise, yeah, I mean, we're just supposed to be cool with people having, even what they have, be taken away from them. Yeah. Um, I mean, that yeah. Should, should make For no sense. fault of their own or no sin, right? Right. Well, but we Except, have a mindset that poverty is because of sin. Right. right. Houselessness, homelessness, that's sin. Um, even even the Jews at the time believed that physical handicaps were the were a, and so that type of poverty, like that, they believed the same that poverty was a sin or sin based. That's um, not what I was saying, though. I, I think that um, I think that that you you can only take the master as God form unless you actually. And like you have to believe that God is taking away those items from people, that money from people, because you believe that poverty or God takes away from those that are sinning. Exactly. Yeah. That's the only logical conclusion to that. Mm -hmm. Like, why would God take away from somebody else and take from them and steal from them? Yeah. Unless Sorry. you believe the concept that poverty is the conclusion of sin. And I know some people that are listening and will listen to that actually hold that view, even subconsciously hold that view. Our mm -hmm. entire, pervasive. Our right. entire economic system is built on that. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That in yeah. order for, and there's compassionate capitalism. I understand that and we engage with it, but in order for capitalism to work, it's very best. There has to be a taken from party. Well, it's called currency for a reason. It flows from people who don't have it to people who have it. That's, that's a nice saying. Mm -hmm. It's not mine, but it comes from someone that everyone knows. But it comes, it, money flows from in capitalism from people who don't have it to people who have it. Yeah. 
and that's that's the view of capitalism and you're impoverished and you don't deserve it or something like that some version of that okay well let's go over legion let's look at mark 5. mark 5 is an interesting scripture because most people have taught this as a really cool amazing miracle proving the divinity of christ and so we're going to cover this a little bit differently um it you know honestly there's no if you believe that the traditional christian form of the talents or if you believe a, just the miracle story of this it doesn't mean that you're you know going to hell or something what what we're trying to do is just give alternate views of meaning to look for uh, different meanings because when i first learned from jake pastor jake on this podcast when i first learned from him about the parable of the talents and the alternate view i actually respected and found a more sacred idea and lifestyle behind that second meaning versus a traditional meaning and so same with this so let's cover this mark 5 1 through 20 jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake to the region of the gerasenes as soon as jesus got out of the boat a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs this man lived among the tombs and no one was ever strong enough to restrain him even with a chain he had been secured many times with leg iron leg iron and chains but he broke the chains and smashed the leg irons no one was tough enough to control him night and day in the tombs of the hills he would howl and cut himself with stones when he saw jesus from far away he ran and knelt before him shouting what have you what have you to do with me jesus son of the most high swear to god that you won't torture me he said this because Jesus had already commanded him, unclean spirit, come out of the man. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He responded, Legion is my name because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Send us into the pigs. They begged, let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. Then the herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down to the cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be a demon, who used to be demon possessed. They saw the very man who had been filled with many demons sitting there fully dressed and completely sane. And they were filled with awe those who had had actually seen what had happened to the demon possessed man told the others about the pigs then they pleaded with jesus to leave the region while he was while while he was climbing into the boat the one who had been demon possessed pleaded with jesus to let him come along as one of the disciples but jesus wouldn't allow it Go home to your own people, Jesus said, and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. The man went away and began to proclaim in the 10 cities all that Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. So first, if first look at this is you see this as a miracle story. You see Legion as this person that 
uh, is demon possessed and didn't want Jesus at first. Then Jesus casted these demons out and into pigs. So <clears throat> there's a couple of ideas in this story that that date it very closely to what Sharia was talking about with the book of Mark. Mark being 70 uh, BCE, or excuse me, CE, Common Era, 70 CE, Mark being that date. I would date it a little later than that probably, but I mean, it works. 70 CE works because there's a lot of war language in this that definitely refers back to temple-esque type behavior, temple-destroying-esque type behavior, referring back to that. So this at first look has, and traditionally has been used to try to prove more the divinity of Christ. And I think that that's a really irresponsible look because there's really only one thing that you need for the divinity of Christ, and that's the forgiveness of sins through the cross and the resurrection. So, so all Christianity hinges on the cross and the resurrection. That's what it hinges on, and really just the resurrection. So if you think about Christianity, all of it makes sense at the resurrection. So we always have to refer back to the resurrection when it comes to when it comes to our view of Jesus, belief in his divinity, whatever. Yet stories like this, people have tried to mysticize or miracleize these stories and they lose what's behind them. So there's a couple of words in this uh, in this story that we have to pay attention to. And that's the word pig or pigs. This story makes no sense without the pigs. Number one, pigs can swim. And so that's, that's a challenge with this story. So why did the pigs drown in the first place? Because pigs can swim. And, and it, right there, the story seems like more like a parable. It seems more like a story of a story. There's some kind of hidden meaning because pigs don't necessarily drown just because they jump in the water or jump off a cliff into the water. So pigs can swim. But then the second is Jews and pigs don't, don't live in the same house. And so this story makes no sense without addressing the pigs. And if we ignore the pigs, which is often done, we focus on the demon, demon, demoniac person. We focus on legion more than the pigs, but we need to focus on those, on those pigs. So this whole story actually takes place in a part of Israel where faithful adherence to Yahweh is not their thing. The 10 cities is the Decapolis. And the Decapolis, which is noted in the scripture, that the demoniac man went to the Decapolis, the rest of the cities, and preached this good news. The east of the Sea of the Galilee basically was covered when it came to ev evangelism um, in the conclusion of the story. Yet this area basically is a whole area of Greek and Roman culture, and it's a Hellenized area. Uh, Roman imperialism basically... Uh, prevailed. And so temples, their gods, um, idols and such were probably just like in placed like in just different sections of the towns in this outpost, this Decapolis um, type area, outpost of the of the Roman Empire. And so pigs make sense. 
right? So pigs would be around because that was a food of the Hellenized world, not of the Jewish world, but of the Hellenized world. So, so then the story is kind of weird because you have this zombie type creature man who is naked and unashamed um, running around screaming and yelling and probably scarred from chains and looking pretty uh, weird coming from basically the graveyard, the tombs, like I said, tombs twice. So that's another word is coming from the tombs of the Gentiles. And so that's a really important piece, not only pigs, but then the tombs of the Gentiles. So, so that's a, a more of a metaphor yelling at Jesus, leave me alone. It's like even the, coming from the dead, uh, this demon possessed man, the tombs of the Gentiles. So something has died. Something has gone on in this story greater than this demon possessed man ordering basically Jesus uh, around. And so uh, Jesus sends the demons into the pigs and then they basically promptly hurl themselves into the water. So the question is, is this a historical uh, event? And I would say absolutely not. This is not a historical event. Most everybody that is not just a one view theological thinker um, agrees that this is a historical event. It's an important event and it has definite sacred meaning. It's definitely, it belongs in the, in the gospels and it's definitely important to the earlier followers of, of Jesus. Um, this story basically takes place in this, in this area that it's said to be a garrisine or garrisa, garrison or garasa. And Garasa was a basically a place, yet Garasa is a is an is probably not where this took place because there was another there was another town in the Decapolis called the Garad the Gardara the Gadara. So you have the Garasa and the Gadara. And there were oral traditions rolling around, and Mark probably took the Garasa versus the Gadara, because the Gadara is actually where the retired military were. But the Garasa is where the Romans went in and basically annihilated 1,000 people. And so the idea of legion and the thousand demons possessing the demon-possessed individual brings allusion to basically Garasa, which is where the Roman people just annihilated uh, 1,000. They were attacked, brutally attacked. And so, so coming out of this tomb, there's a lot of death in this story, military attack in this story. There's definitely something uh, different. So I would say that Mark probably took the oral tradition of Garasa and tied it to this story, even though the pig is the outpost sign. It's the marker of the town of uh, Garada, which is the place where military would retire. But Garasa is where all the people had died. 
So they're kind of a mashing of two. So you would call this story political satire, I would say. Um, I would say more as I read Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann and his resistance theories, I would say this is more resistance satire versus political satire. It's more empire resistance satire. And so, uh, so Roman imperialism would be seen as demonic possession. So Roman imperialism is the empire is the demonic possession. So the 1000 dead souls are the representation of the Roman brutal empire that kills the vulnerable and the poor. So they are the subject of political cruelty and horrific uh, death and, and poverty. So the person's name is Legion. That's another word that we need to pay attention to. Um, large, basically, that's a division, a thousand soldiers of the empire. So that makes sense as you tie this. But the term herd of swine, so we have this imagery of the herd of swine is the military recruits. But when Jesus dismisses the demons, that is a, that is a commander dismissing uh, soldiers and the pigs charge into the water like they did a battle. And so this is now one time where we see a tie back, one of the times that we see a tie back all the way back to the book of Exodus, where we see another empire with soldiers given the charge order from the Pharaoh to run into the water. So this is an Exodus retelling of the military or the Roman military, uh, the, uh, yeah, the Roman military being charged into uh, the water, like, like into the Red Sea. So allegory, satire of imperialism, of empire, and the possessed man is this basically the state of human beings under that kind of occupation, under that kind of thing, um, where when we are under empire, we'll go mad, we'll be tormented to death, we'll be stripped of like dignity, and we will be shamed. So, so that's the pigs, that's legion, that's the swine. They drown like Pharaoh's army eventually, meaning the empire, the whole thing will be coming down. Now, now the demon-possessed man, the demon-possessed man represents liberation. So the idea of in his right mind means complete or whole. So through Christ's economic system of Sabbath is resistance, uh, anti-empire is resistance through Jesus's ec new economic system of the year of Jubilee, all slaves are free, all land is given back, all debts are released. Through that idea, um, we are in our right mind. We're restored and we can live as what 
God intended. So this is also then recreation back to the garden. And so, so Legion actually turns into an Adam where he's the now original Adam that is made whole and is told to return home, to return home and declare all that God has, has done. Basically tell your neighbors and love your neighbors as I have uh, loved you. So I would say that if you bridge the gap, bridge and take that meaning, political satire, empire, resistance, um, if you take that and and you cross over to is that us, I think it's a shocking mirror. I think it's definitely something that we need to consider um, when we encounter Jesus and Jesus reveals empire to us. What are we participating in that is destroying people? What is what is what are we participating in that is destroying our souls, but also for uh, destroying other people's souls as well. So I think that we can be a victim of imperial madness, empire madness. I think that we can be a victim and we need freedom from participation into that. Otherwise, we'll be driven to our own insanity and, quote, metaphorically drown. Sorry, that was my... <laughs> I don't know if everyone heard that, but that everyone was Everyone heard it. It's all good, though. <laughs> Um, Apologize for that. So, I mean, to to, to piggy piggyback, that's funny. Off Kevin, what he just said with the story. Uh, this <laughs> is the standard flag of the Roman legion that was stationed in Judea, and they are the ones that destroyed the temple. And so that's when you look at the story of pigs and the legion and jumping off a cliff and the political satire, that's, that's the connection of, of it all that, that Mark is basically just telling a group of people to go jump off a cliff and die. Yeah. Well, that's the story of legion. I don't know if that was exciting for anyone else, but that was kind of exciting for me. Good. <laughs> Did we learn anything new about that? Yes. What was it? <laughs> the connection between Exodus and the, the soldiers? Oh, yeah, I think good. so. But um, yeah, and the tomb, like the connection between the um, legion of soldiers and essentially the, the legion of those who were killed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's some nuance to it that you have to just like, like of course it's satire. So it's it's nuanced. And so there's stories within stories. And then if you lift this story out, it's like you can, you can illustrate, you can um, tie it to this group of people. But if you pull like, if you pull the pigs out, that represents the army. If you pull the souls, the, the screaming souls out of the pigs, that represents those who died. If you look at Legion right. in and of himself, he, he becomes a liberated person. Um, if Legion has all the souls inside of him, he's the victim of, of imperial oppression it's it's just it's just a story within layers upon layers upon layers that that makes a lot of sense when you when you look at it through that lens through that um imperial lens nice. i think probably at the end here today but next week we'll go over the pithy sayings of jesus pithy 
pithy. Well, thanks both of you for participating in the Gospels. We're going to continue with the sayings of Jesus next week and try to move forward into the New Testament. Um, I hope people got something out of this as we talked through the Gospels tonight. And so this is the Bible, what to believe and what to leave. And if you want to make any comments, please do. If you want to support us, go to ResonateLife.org and go to our Bit Give page. So with that, good night, everybody.